This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories in Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I'm editor-at-large and editorial cartoonist in Mississippi Today. Uh, great show today. Joining us is Michael Ferris-Smith. He, he's an award-winning writer whose novels they've appeared on Best of the Year list from publications like Esquire. And then, of course, NPR, Southern Living, Garden and Gun, Oprah Magazine, Book Riot, um, numerous other outlets – Okay, Michael, I'm a little bit – I don't know if I'm worthy to have you on the show today. That's pretty incredible to have that list. I mean, you got Oprah too, so. Well, you know, that's very nice of you to say, but feel free to keep going. Okay, I will. You live in <laughs> Oxford you, with your wife and your daughters. Um, you're, you've got the same problem I've got when it comes to kids. They're all getting older now and moving away, and that's sad. And Yes, it is. My oldest daughter is a freshman now at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and my youngest is uh, 12, about to be 13, but I still think of them as my little girls. I know it. Yeah. It's no, hard I, not to. Yeah. No, I, I completely get that one as well. You've had a very, very busy year. Of course, the novel Salvage This World popped out. I love it, by the way. And we'll talk, talk about that. You've had a couple movies hit as well. Um, you are a prolific master of Southern, Southern Noir, Rough South, and Grit Lit. I love those all three of those. Uh, you've been compared to Larry Brown, Cormac McCarthy. Um, that's enough to make you blush. That is very uh, – I ne- don't re- ever really get tired of hearing that. People ask me what it feels like to be compared to some of those writers, and I just always say it feels very nice, you know, feels yeah. good. Yeah, you know? we're, we're going to welcome Abram, too, because um, he's driving the bus today. He can't talk much today because apparently he did a lot of singing and partying over the Thanksgiving holiday. That's See? not exactly wrong okay. either. I, okay. I sang a good bit yesterday at church, so that's that's what oh, we'll okay. blame it on. Okay. See, yeah. that's that's a much better excuse than what I was coming up with in my head, and, well, and I said on the air like an idiot. So. Yeah, well, I appreciate you. No, no, I'm glad I could make you sound like a terrible human being. You're like, oh, no, I lost <laughs> it in church, so there you go. So yeah. I, I feel about three inches tall, and I'm sorry you didn't get the Mississippi State coaching job. Oh, you know, I... I would be fine to take that job and get fired within three games or so because I've seen that payout. So. Oh, the buyouts, that's what it's all about. That's what, yeah, Michael and I were talking about that. We were hoping to get that buyout. Yeah, of, exactly. I mean, I want a Jimbo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, jumbo Jimbo uh, buyout there. I saw a thing today where they were saying, oh, he's going to coach at Vanderbilt. <laughs> right. Please. He can sit on his couch and make more in a minute than I make in a year. Yeah. Why so, would you? Why? And, uh, you know, no offense to Vanderbilt, but. Why? Yeah, why would yeah, you? Yeah, I, so? I would just sit on that for a little bit if it was me. But yeah, I, I'm not the one that's in question here at all. Oh no, but I I think I think that Mississippi State did fine. I think they got a good coach for and, sure. And one thing we discovered, I think, with both Lane Kiffin and you know Josh Heupel up at Tennessee, you get these offensive juggernauts that score a lot of points. A lot of points usually equals a lot of people sitting in the seats. 
which is at the end of the day what they need. And so I think it's a good thing for Mississippi State. So we'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, that's the main thing you do for Mississippi State football is keep your fingers crossed. Well, yes, yes. But I got to tell you, I have discovered in my 30 years nearly of living here that when both teams are winning, when everybody's – or when all teams in Mississippi are winning, when Southern Miss is winning, we're happy. And I like a happy Mississippi. It's it's a, it's a pleasant good experience. I don't know if I've experienced that as much. Yeah, well, back a few years ago, <laughs> back when you were probably, you know, I don't know, um, we were like ranked number one and number three at one week. Oh yeah, I remember oh, that. One. That was a good. That was that amazing. Was a good week. That was the, amazing. The sky was blue. The birds were singing. Real estate prices jumped. It was amazing. And that was that was peak Alabama time too. So I think and I think Ole Miss beat Alabama that year. Oh they did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh and Auburn. It was great. Yeah. I remember doing a cartoon. I I think even um ESPN put it on the air. I had, you know, the the Auburn Tiger trying to tell the elephant, I I tried to warn you. <laughs> you know, as they've both been run over. So it was great. Yeah. So good time. Yeah. But anyway, um sorry you didn't get make the cut. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll get over it eventually. But you wouldn't be here today, so I'm I glad wouldn't. you're here. So. I wouldn't. I know. I know you guys are thrilled to have me back in this in the room. Yeah. For so you guys, I just want- as as third backup for, for <laughs> the show today. No, no, no. It's uh, just because we're coming off a holiday and oh, Lacey's yeah. off having a good time with her family, and that's what what matters. Absolutely. And Jermaine, well, you know, she just it's just. Yeah, yeah, you never know. I know. <laughs> I'm kidding. Jermaine's no, just, she's out as a rock well star. No, she's, yes. she's got a very good reason also. Yes, so. for sure. Okay, very good. Michael, thank you for joining me. I've had the pleasure of interviewing you a couple times this year. Um, and I'm going to say this out front. I'm a big fan thank and, you. And of you personally and of your work. Uh, you've had an incredible decade. Uh, you know, we were just talking a little bit about that, about being prolific and so forth. And you know, and and you've put out what seven novels now in the last decade. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's been seven now. First one was in uh, actually eleven, so it's been uh, yeah, eleven or twelve years. We didn't get in this job because of our math skills. Yeah, clearly not. Um, but I, I think I'm starting to. I think I have reflected on it some this year in a way that I haven't really thought about it or reflected on it. Before, because um, I don't think the things you go through to get to get there ever really disappear from the back of your mind. Like every time you sit down to start something new, there's still all of that insecurity and doubt that was with you before you could even get anybody to pay any attention to you. And just it has been brought up in interviews and things like how much has happened in the last 10 years or so. And um, I've really spent more time thinking about it. And I may be being... Um, um, proud of it in a way that I haven't taken the time to be proud of it. Uh, right. I think uh, every time something happens, people tell me, you should just sit back and enjoy this. And I've always tried to. I don't know that I always have been successful at it for various reasons, but I think I've been trying in recent uh, weeks and months to just try to be uh, look at what has happened and the what you put into it and Soak in it a little bit. It's okay to, you know, pause for a second. And go, all right. Um, maybe, uh, maybe I'm doing, 
uh, maybe I can just be proud of it and just look at it and say, all right, um, I'm glad it's all there, you know, in a way that I, I maybe didn't slow down to do it as things have been happening. Well, I mean, considering, too, that you've had, like I said, a novel and two movies drop this year. Yeah. So I'm sure Thanksgiving this year, of course, I mean, you were thankful for your family, which is number one, but number two, just to sit there and think that, wow, this has been my one of my best years yet. Oh, absolutely. And, and when, when you realize everything that went into one, a novel, writing a novel, yeah. uh, any novel, and then, oh, my God, all the all the things that have to happen for an independent film to get made. I mean, it, it was a lot. And um, uh, very thankful. Yeah, uh, very satisfied, but also not wholly content that, I, you know, I'm ready to work, get up tomorrow and start going again. That's but right. I do, I, I have felt in recent times, um, I've kind of given myself the uh, permission to sit and, jo- and enjoy it some. That's hard because, and I don't know about you, but I actually love the process of creating yeah. more than I do sitting around and basking in whatever former glory that I ever had. Yeah, I'm the same way. Like, yeah. quite honestly, um, you know, the films came out at Desperation Road, October the 6th, and Rumble Through the Dark, and The, the Fighter, uh, November 10th. And I've had those dates on the calendar so long. We've had a lot of things to do in relation to them. Now they're in, in the rearview mirror, which when it feels like all I've done is sit around and wait forever. And and now I'm at, back in Oxford. And I don't have any travel ahead of me. And I realize my studio space is sitting there. And I'm actually really kind of... Um, excited about going back into the room again and just getting involved in the process of creating again because I'm ha- talking about being happy when football teams are winning. You know, I'm I'm also happy when I'm in the middle of working on something. Yeah. You know, and, and the fire. Uh, I, I think part of my unwillingness to I think sit back and relax and enjoy things sometimes is because I feel like that might put the fire out. And yeah. I've realized there is a, I can do both. Like I can be proud of this. I can enjoy this for a couple of months and just be part of everything that's going on. Um, but when it's over, I feel the burning again. And so I realize now like it's still there. And so you can enjoy a moment, but you can also realize tomorrow when I get up, it's time to go start shoveling coal again, if you know what I mean. Describe your stu- what, your studio. It's a little place uh, off the square in Oxford. Uh, it's in the back of this um old building called the Anchorage building and it's so it's uh, worth about eight million dollars now <laughs> whoever owns the building yes <laughs> I mean it, I have a glorified closet I think yeah which is all I need That's I okay. have uh, um, a stack of books that I love and I have a, a table and a laptop and a coffee maker and uh, a couple of cool pieces of art on the wall, and that's it. I mean, I try to keep it stripped down, bare bones, because when I'm in there, I'm not in there to play around. I'm right. I'm in there to go to work, and uh, I do, I do love having that uh, space that's all my own to just step into and and be who I am in those moments. We moved into a new house. I don't have a studio anymore, so mm. I literally did on the kitchen table. Which, but it's okay because then I work from homes on those days yeah. and so forth on that. And it's like a hundred and fifty year old table. Yeah, you know, so I feel like I'm grounded when I'm drawing on that. Oh, on that's that. nice. But the main thing for me is I like make sure my phone is nowhere near me. That you know that I have all the internet turned off. You know, so, yeah, so I can I'm just the, focus on what I'm doing. Do not disturb button. Yeah, is a is a great button to have as a creator. And that is part of 
part of it all for me too. Like uh, if if I'm in the middle of a sentence, the middle of a paragraph, the middle of a scene, and my text beeps or my email beeps, oh, yeah. it's over with, you know. And it's and two, I think this it's the creative process and the creative time is the time for me to. De- both, if this is going to sound strange, it's a time for me to really engage with the world. It's also a time for me to detach yeah. from the world. And I think we could all use those moments during the day where we are not checking our phone or waiting for it to beep or just distracted by it beeping, whether we we're expecting anything or not. I mean, that creative time is the time for me to just be in the silence for a while, which I think all of us could use probably every day. Sounds like it's almost a form of meditation. Yeah, I think it is. And, I, you know, I've talked about this some. There, there are days when I walk out of there, when I've been there no time at all, and, like, the most, what I feel like is the most incredible thing came out of me, and I don't even remember how it happened. Right. You know, it's, it was just you leave and you look at it and you're like, what ha- just happened? There's other days when you sit there and you feel every single word, and it's like laying bricks, and you're just trying to make it through the day because you know this will get you to another day yeah. that's going to be better. But there are other days when you realize you take your fingers off the keyboard and you sit back and you turn around and turn on the coffee machine, and you're just almost like, what just happened? And, I mean, to me, that's always uh, been the most magical and rewarding and interesting thing about it to me and that's the thing you can't explain to people either when they ask you well how do you do it where does this come from you don't know you don't know i mean it's it's an accumulation of a million things but in the moment you don't really know where it comes from i kind of did a loose tally i think i've done like nine thousand cartoons since i've been here or something like that but in some my best ones are the ones that were the idea just comes yeah. to me. And, yeah. and, you know, I always tell people like we live in this world and then you can reach out and grab stuff and bring it back occasionally. Right. But, you know, and I'm not a writer, but I do write, but I'm not a writer. Um, I, I'm not an artist either, but I draw cartoons. But I mean, uh, for me, when I'm writing or if I'm drawing, what I'm trying to do is I have this image in my head mm-hmm. and I just recreate it, whether I'm drawing it or I'm writing it. And, and to me, you must get like incredible pictures in your head and then you thankfully have a vocabulary that I don't have <laughs> that you can create this beautiful world or word picture, you know, yeah. is that how it works for you? Or are you just basically, or you're just stringing words together? And, and no, create- I think that's how it works. I'm very image driven. Yeah. Um, I've also been willing to let my imagination be very free and not yeah. be so concerned of the realism of things. Yeah. I've I've been willing to take chances with characters and places that I think has served me well. Very well. Mm-hmm. Um I've been willing to lay awake at night. I've been willing to have nightmares. I've been willing to I think be um bothered by the things um thinking about and writing about in an hour-to-hour basis and how it affects me as a person, I think. I've been willing to do those things because I know when I'm um, off into that space and that head space and that soul space, the it sounds weird to say, but the more affected I am by it, it feels like that's the, mo- the more important the story is. Or that's how I know this is the story I'm supposed to be writing. If I wasn't affected about it, if I wasn't 
having a hard time sleeping, if I wasn't carrying it around, um, and if I wasn't a little confused and scared and uh, nervous about it, then it wouldn't be the right thing to do. And I think it, um, that was a lesson I learned early on is as a writer, whatever image it is, whatever darkness it is, whatever joy it is, you just need to dive into it and let it be what it's going to be without um, um, almost without expectation. I think when you begin to put expectation on even like a scene, you you might be robbing it of that day's work because you're you've got it so set in your mind what it's going to be before you get there that that's all it can become and it can't become something else. And the days that are the best is when I have an idea of what I'm doing when I'm going in and I come out something completely different has happened. And I I, I will always hold on to that because um I think the the risk taking of it and the ability and the um giving your permissions to giving your permission to your characters and your to your story to live its own life mm-hmm. I think is very very important. I can look at every novel I've written and I can see the moments when it really changed and became something I wasn't expecting. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. We're back with fantastic show. Thank you so much for listening. We have critically acclaimed author and now screenwriter and movie producer and uh, dad and Oxford resident and all-around pretty decent guy, uh, Michael Ferris-Smith in <laughs> studio. Man, I'm just glad to be able to hang out with you and I were just talking a little bit during the break about it's that I love – for me personally, I love talking to, and we're so blessed here in Mississippi to have so many creative people that live around us mm-hmm. to be able to talk to. But I love, I mean, just, I love talking creativity with you. Um, I feel like I'm learning something and, and I kind of feel like I've done this a long time, but I just love hearing about your process. Uh, I can see you get up first thing in the morning, you got your coffee, you kind of just sit there and you let the world, you know, unwrap in front of you and then you try to capture yeah. it in words. I like talking about it, too. I mean, one of the things that really affected me when I was beginning was I I spent a lot of time reading interviews with writers. Hmm. I would go to uh, the library, and I remember the Paris Review, um, um, the library at Southern Miss had them cataloged, all the Paris Review interviews separated by decades. So I could pick up the 20s. I could read interviews with Gertrude Stein and Hemingway and T.S. Eliot, and then you yeah. go to the third and thirties, four, and you read all these interviews with these great writers. And I always love that because you get behind the curtain in in the way that you that you can't otherwise, you know. And I, I wanted to hear about process, and I wanted to see what think the kind of things writers went through. And so I've always done that. I even do that now. I love like now you can pull up YouTube and you can watch interviews with writers or musicians or artists or cartoonists or like anybody like the creative process, no matter what medium it is, is always really kind of fascinating to me. And I think it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before the things I've learned from other people and seen from other people and kind of knowing they struggle too. And people are all, everybody's trying to figure it out. You know, Uh, it, it gives you that Liberty to try something different or do something different or just kind of say, you know, just let it rip and see what happens. And first of all, I don't believe in writer's block, uh, but I mean, I believe it's real. I think it happens, but I think you can work past it. I don't know about you, but for me, my kryptonite is fatigue. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing. You get tired. It's hard to sit there and because then, and I was telling you a little bit where I've kind of been burned out recently on, on my work uh, just because I've been really busy and so forth. And, but it's okay to take a break and walk away from it, isn't it? It is absolutely okay to take a break. And I think it, it serves the process way better than I used to 
think it did. My, I remember my mindset early on was, well, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this every day, no matter what. And that's true on some level, you know, just in, but there, life happens. You know, you have children, you have, I was teaching full time up until, you know, a few years ago. Like we all have things, people, life happens and you you're taken away from it for a while i mean even in recent years like a book tour would take me away for a month from whatever i was doing or working on and i used to get real kind of anxious about that but now what i've realized is when i come back to the work from that break from that moment recovering from whatever it is whether it be fatigue or you know just being busy yeah you come back to it kind of uh, reinvigorated a little bit and it turns out it's probably it's been you, you don't stop thinking about it, so it's there. And it's probably when you sit down, it's better than it would have been if you would have kept going. And that's the attitude I have about it. And we were talking about this some, too. And I think there's um, uh, a lot of, of validity in that. You know, step back, take a breath. That doesn't mean you're quitting, um, but it's okay to, you know, let, let the well fill back up a little bit. I think it's one thing amazing and just starting all the way from your earliest books all the way up to, up to salvage the world is the fact that, you know, because you, there is a bell. I, I really believe there's a bell curve when it comes to creativity. You see, and I don't know if it's because people hit their peak, they have their big thing, and they start phoning it in or whatever. But there has been a constant golden thread of quality in everything you've done. You've created interesting characters. You've had great scenes. They've all been reviewed very well on the highest of levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, that takes a lot of work to be able to do that over a decade and to sit there and look at your newest book and say, you know what? I'm as proud of this one as I am of my first one. Yeah, it's kind of uh, terrifying, to be honest, um, because I don't know. Everything I do next is I want it to be the best thing I've ever done. I think that that's in, huge. That's though. some ways yeah. that's an artist's curse. Yeah, and I also think in some ways it's an artist's blessing that you feel that. that every day you sit down, I want to be better than I've ever been before. That's that can be a lot. Um, it's also um, shoves me and keeps me out of any type of. Um, uh, I don't know contentment. Yeah, with what I've Ooh, done. Yeah, and I think when when a writer and when an artist is content, I think it comes across pretty early on in whatever you're looking at or listening to. Um, I, it's just a self thing. I, I don't know. Um, when I look at the novels and I and I talk to people about the novels. I'm very happy that I can have a different conversation about every novel. You know, they all are their own story. They all have their own thing going on. You're They're not all, writing the same story. It's over not and the over same over. story. Yeah. And quite yeah. honestly, when you're writing basically about Mississippi, it's. <laughs> I'm about to say, you and I both are blessed with that. <laughs> Some people, where do you get your ideas from? Yeah. Well, I got a crack team of comedy yeah. writers, you know, downtown at the Capitol, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So. But, you know, wrestled around that is Paris, you know, the Hands of Strangers is set in Paris and then the, yeah. the swing I took with Nick. Yeah. And people thought I was crazy to do that. But for me, that was a way to, I mean, I was completely driven by the idea and I was emotionally attached to the idea and I got to go to the trenches of World War One, and I got to go to Paris and I got to go to New Orleans in the, in the 20s and that was very fertile ground as a writer. Um so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a very nice compliment. I'm very happy the novels continue to get kind of read and seen as they are. And it, yeah. uh, 
um, I think part of the trick in all of it, and I hate to use that word trick, is kind of what we were talking about before. When something's over, it's over. And I have fortunately up until this point had the ability to shift gears pretty quickly after something is over. Yeah. Uh, two things that I love about your writing. Uh, there's a lot of things I love about your writing. But as somebody who wants to – and I've always said the best way to learn how to you know, become a writer is read other people's writing. Mm-hmm. They just – or to have an excellent professor like you, which I never had. So there you go. Um, but I always love the fact that all your your villains are not cookie cutter bad guys. Yeah, Larry, um, you know, Desperation Road. You yeah. totally understand why he's the way he is. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, he's awful. He's a horrible human being, and you know, and obviously is the bad guy. But you understand why he's. He is what he is. And, and you know, there's so much. You do trauma really well. All your characters, all, you know, there's a gray. Even the good guys, there's a grayness mm-hmm. there. And and I think that's real life. You know, it's just not cookie cutter, good guy, bad guy, plot, make that work. I think that's the first thing I love about what you do. Second is the sense of place. Um, and, I you know, I remember – my boss, when I left San Diego to come here many, many years ago, I'm from the South, but I mean, I, I went out there for a couple of years, which was great. Don't get me wrong. Nice weather. But it was good to come back here because um, when I left, you know, he handed me Willie's North toward home. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you can ever understand sense of place this well, you will do well in Mississippi, which he was he was right. Yeah. But when I'm reading The Fighter, for instance, I got back sweat. Because, I mean, I'm going through the Delta, you know, and I'm just like, you captured that so well. If you can, like, make me react physically when I'm reading your words. And those are the two things I think I've always loved about your writing. As you were growing up and learning to write, how did you – who did you model yourself after and who did you kind of say, I want to be like this a little bit? Because, I mean, obviously I read Peanuts and I read – you know, right. Mad Magazine, and you know, I had my influences, and I don't draw anything like Peanuts or anything else, but they shaped who I was. Yeah, who who was it when you were growing up, and when did you decide? Oh, I'm asking a really long question here. When did you decide you you like you know I'm gonna make a go with this? Yeah, well, it is a long question. So I'm just gonna sit back. <laughs> I'm gonna take a nap and uh, it let you answer. Ju- it has just as long an answer. Well, that's fine. That I'll try to give the Cliff Notes. Oh no, take version take your time. two. I wish I could say that when I was young or when I was a kid, I did think about any of this stuff, but I, I didn't. Um, I was a ball player growing up. My dad was a Southern Baptist preacher. We bounced around all over the place. I was outside as much as I could be. Um, and that's pretty much how I was all the way through high school. You know, I did, I made pretty good grades, but I can't say it was by any great amount of interest or effort that led to that. Um, I do know. When I look back on it all now, that as a kid, the thing I was really and probably got my imagination going as much as anything was the Bible stories. Mm-hmm. I can remember being like like very young, like four or five years old, and I had a um, Bible with illustrations oh, yeah. in it. So when you had the story of Daniel in the lion's den, you had a drawing of Daniel sitting there and these lions staring at him salivating. When you got to Moses parting the Red Sea, you had Moses standing there with his arms outstretched and the sea open and the bad guys on one side and the good guys hustling through the middle. And so it was that over and over again. And I just can remember those stories and how they triggered my imagination. And those stories are also full of things like courage and failure and temptation and 
redemption. You do redemption really well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a, a lot of it is rooted in that. Um, and I think failure, too, because in, in the Bible stories, um, people fail all the time. Yeah. You know, and it, 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 there are there is a lot of gray in those stories, too, if you really break them down and you see how people deal with the things they're going and the doubt of it all, too. Um, so that uh, I, I got out of school. Uh, I played ball a couple of years in JUCO, went to Mississippi State. Again, I got I think I graduated with a 2.4 just because. And I got out and I somehow ended up living in Europe for a few years. And this is how we kind of got back around to the landscape and who I was influenced by and all this and that and the other. Me being living abroad really, it really fit with me. It really settled with me. I loved it so much. Even now when I'm in Europe, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go to one museum. I don't have to go to one show. I can start walking in whatever city I'm in, and I can spend all day walking and looking at the architecture and walking past the river and walking past the park and stopping and having a coffee and walking some more and looking some more and stopping and having a glass of wine. I I can do that all day and all night. It doesn't bother me at all. And I, I reveled in that from the moment I got there. There was something about it. And then in the midst of all of that, I'm being introduced to places like, you know, Paris and Madrid and London and and the people I was meeting constantly, and I was stepped back from Mississippi and uh, the repetition of everything I'd been taught my whole life and the repetition of everything I'd heard my whole life. And I began to realize there's a lot more to think about than um, the things that I've been thinking about. In the course of that, I started to notice people reading, uh, sitting in the cafes. They got a book on the metro, on the train. They have a book sitting in the park people are reading and i had a lot of i had time you know um and i had language barriers wherever i was and so when i could find an english language bookstore i would go pick out something to read and because i i wasn't a very good student or interested student i only knew the names of writers that everybody like who went to high school or or college would know like the big names like the hemingway and the faulkner and the welty and charles dickens and just some you know some of these giants you know dostoevsky Chekhov, you know those russian writers and so that's that's what i would get and that's what i would grab and it turns out those are pretty good writers you know to be <laughs> reading but I, I remember it hit me reading hemingway i start reading hemingway as i'm living first in Geneva and then in Paris. And I get to these stories where his characters are sitting in the cafes in Paris. And I'm like, well, I'm sitting in the cafes in Paris. And then his characters are going to the bullfights in Spain. And I was like, well, I, I'll go to the bullfights in Spain. And so, you know how it is when you read something and you can relate to it? Like, I found myself way, way, way far mm-hmm. away from home, all of a sudden relating to this thing I'm reading in, a, in another country as an ex- expatriate. And it just really began to like ring with me in some way. And then I read Fitzgerald and his characters mm-hmm. are up and down the French Riviera too. And through those writers, and then I read Faulkner, you know, I'm like, well, I'm from Mississippi. I should read Faulkner. And there, you know, the place drips off every page. And from there I started uh, trying to discover more. Right. I started reading interviews and see who these writers liked. And I found Larry Brown at this point on a trip back home during uh, the holidays one time. 
And as I read Larry Brown, I started reading Larry's interviews, and he starts talking about Cormac McCarthy. And so I start reading Cormac McCarthy. And one thing all these writers have in common is a tremendous sense of place. Yeah. And I think that's certainly where I cut my teeth as a reader. So when it came time, uh, when I came back home at 29 and thought, well, I'm going to try to write, which made no sense to me at all because I had not written one word up to that point. What were you doing to actually survive in London and in, 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 in Europe? I was in, uh, I actually somehow stumbled, tripped, and fell into a job working for um, a traveling basketball festival that was sponsored by the NBA. They had just opened their first office in Geneva, Switzerland, in an effort to make basketball a global game, which they have done incredibly. Mm -hmm. And they were going to do like a 25 to 30 uh, city tour across Western Europe where they would set up a ba- uh, r- literally a basketball festival. Just They would pay for these incredible sites in these cities, and they would set up a bunch of tents and a bunch of hoops and a bunch of special events things just to get kids to just come out and to be exposed to basketball. And there were going to be three 18-wheelers that drove all the gear around, and they needed a road crew like on, on a rock and roll show to go around, uh, have a rail pass, you just go from place to place, and you unload the trucks, they give you a site map, you set up the event with a dozen local labor guys, the event runs for two days, when it's over, you break it all down, put it in the trucks, the trucks drive off, and you have um, three days just to get to be to the next place at the next time. I met a guy at a bar in Dallas who offered me that job. Um, <laughs> truly, that's how it happened. And I said yes. And so... Um, that's how I ended up there, and that's what I was doing. That was uh, three or four years of my life, and we had apartments in when the office was in Geneva. So in the off season, we would be there preparing for the next year, and then uh, toward the end, the office move to Paris. So you know, you look backward on your life, and everything makes sense. But when you're going through it, you're like, yeah. Oh, this is total chaos. That's incredible, though. I, it, it, I, I thought, okay, you're one of the coolest people I know. Now, now officially, it's official. Yeah, that's one of the wildest things uh, I've ever heard. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it was one weekend to the next. I was in Rome, yeah, Athens, Berlin, Paris. So you were getting your master's and doctor, doctorate pretty much all in one pop. Then you went and got, you know, you went back to school. But it was yes. I mean, even talking about it now, it seems made up. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like it really, like I really did it, or that something that cool could exist for a 25 year old single man. So, you talk to cooler people in bars than I do. Well, apparently. Yeah, because I mean, I never got, you know. (laughs) It's just crazy how things happen, man. You You look back on your life and you see all those little moments where you're just willing to, and this is something I try to share with my daughters, especially my daughter now. Is at college, like the smallest thing, mm-hmm. you never, never know what it might turn into. My life has been a uh, a path of that. I can see all the stones I stepped on along the way that I, I, you know, raise your hand and ask a question or say, I can do it or say, uh, yes, or say, can I, you know, how about this? And you never know what people are going to say. You never know how, what the result of that is going to be if you're willing to put yourself out there. And I was, and um, mainly because I was lost. I had no real calling. I had no real passion. I had no um, relationships that mattered to me. I had, I didn't have anything. I was just kind of out there, lost and wondering. So I was willing to maybe step out further than I would have been if those attachments might have been there. 
And I think that was a tremendous part of all of it, too. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of people don't understand that. I've always I've got several friends who are doctors and lawyers, and I admire them because they've worked really hard to get where they at. But they had a path. Yeah. You know, they had, a, a you know, you got to do this. You got to pass your boards. You got to do your, your residency, da, da, da. When you're in the creative business, like you know, me being an editorial card, my first job out of college, I was a janitor for a year, yeah. which I thought was terrible, right? But I worked with a lady who set me up with her daughter who I've been married to for 30 years. Yeah. So that See? was the best job I ever had. Yeah, of course. You know, so, yeah. you know, you look backwards on it, it makes all the sense in the world. And then I worked with another lady who said, yeah, I got a friend that works at a local newspaper. You yeah. want to go work there? And I'm like, nah, I'm going to be a janitor. I really like this. And she was <laughs> like, I, I said sarcasm. I mean, yeah. well, nothing wrong with the job, but I mean, I, that's how I got my career started. Yeah. So, but with you, and I was thinking about, I remember, because I think I interviewed you first on Rivers. Mm-hmm. Which I was like, I don't know how he's going to top this book. That's really a good book, and you have. And and then I think I interviewed you on the fighter. Yeah. And and now I'm interviewing now, and and I'm looking. I mean, you've made pretty big leaps. I mean, you were teaching full time, which is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were in Columbus. Then you decided to make the move to Oxford, which I think has paid off. Yeah. I think because you know it just it's been a good move for you to move there. But you then you were in Water Valley. Now you're actually. Uh, you don't have to drive you right. know, 15, 20 minutes to get to your office now. You can actually just walk to it yep. on that. But it, it's just been fun watching how your career and, you know, disruption, I think, has been kind of good for you, too, in the sense that, um, you know, you get an opportunity. And, and people compare you to Cormac McCarthy. He, he wrote five screenplays. Mm-hmm. And now you're writing screenplays. Mm-hmm. Because guess what? Somebody said, well, we need a screenplay. And you're yeah. like, okay, I'm going to learn how to write screenplays. And so there's a, a degree of disruption in your growth, too. And that's been fun to watch also. Well, thank you. That's very nice to say. And I I, I think disruption is good yeah. for an artist. Um, oh, I agree. I mean, how else are you going to experience new things and deal with new things, um, meet new people? Um, well, you can get thrown in jail. You can do a lot of things. You can do a lot of things. I mean, you'll meet a lot of new people. (laughs) That's right. You can do a lot of things. But I think uh, what I'm always afraid of is getting stuck in a pattern or stuck in a rut. Yeah. Because I think your art is going to reflect that. Right. And I just, uh, I mean, quite honestly, it terrifies me. That's why I think Nick was so important. Yeah. I really do. I think so, too. Like, um, it was a very different experience. You know, my yeah. DNA is all in that book, but still, it's a very different experience. And um, well, I mean, your DNA is in all your books because of where you set them, because yeah. they're all places you grew up. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's another thing too. I write about different parts of Mississippi because I lived, I've lived all You've over lived all Mississippi. Over, yeah. Like I don't, I guess Macomb is where essentially I graduated from high school, and I guess if you know, in my biography, people call that my hometown, but I don't really know. I mean, I've. I've been uh on the move since i was a kid from one little town to the other and so i can write about the delta because i experienced i can write about the north mississippi hill country because that's where i live and i can write about south mississippi because that's where i lived like i can i've been able to reach in those different pockets of mississippi and for people in mississippi you realize there are all those pockets people outside of it think it's all one big you know it's all the same everywhere and it's and it's not and each one provides a different palette of colors Different palette of colors, a different personality. Yeah. I mean, the coast is different from the Delta. The Delta, well, Delta is different from everywhere on the planet. 
basically. Um, but the North Mississippi Hill Country is a different personality than like Jackson and, you know, Meridian and that area up through Columbus. It's just uh, so it gives you all those things and you just try to serve it the best you can. But again, like I, I even that just little disruption of using different places. Yeah. Gives me a, a some type of fresh idea of um, what these people are going through. Which comes across. You're listening to Now You're Talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, and I'm back with Mississippi author and screenwriter, Michael Ferris-Smith. Uh, you know, talk. let's talk about your year this year, obviously. Uh, Salvage of the World, I absolutely love the book, uh, but just because... You know, I could tell you've kind of gotten the, the pacing on it felt a little more like you'd been. You, I could tell you'd learned to write sc- screenwriting. You know, mm-hmm. on that, well, the, just the t- pacing on it. But I also love the fact that once again, there's a great redemption story in there. And you created a bad guy or a bad woman um, <laughs> who, and I think it was the New York Times that said she's a villain, villain in the way a shark is a villain, which I thought was was great <laughs> yeah. uh, because she's like she literally was a uh, conniving eating machine on the on in that book she just kept going she was almost like bruce and jaws yeah you know she just kept going on that fantastic book so that's one then the two movies hit this year which was actually an accident it wasn't supposed Mm -hmm. to happen that way Um, the one book is of course rumble through the dark which is the fighter i take it the fighter was already taken as a a title for a movie don't you hate when that happens yeah it was a good movie too so there was no sense in yeah using it again no no Um, no uh, that's a, was that the Russell Crowe one? Uh, it was Wahlberg and Christian Bale. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's right, Christian yeah. Bale. Exactly. Yeah, he's yeah. that's the one where he, his weight. Yeah, you know, yeah. Great a, movie. A fantastic movie on that. But that said, um, Aaron Eckhart did a performance in incredible. this movie. Oh my god, he's incredible. And you, he, he, you knew it from the day he showed up. Yeah. The first day I met him. About three weeks, three or four weeks before shooting, we put him up in the Delta because he just wanted to come out there and live it some yeah. and uh, put him up in a cabin out there. He would go into downtown Clarksdale with his script in the days and just sit there on a park bench and listen and watch people. Yeah. Um, the first time I went over there to meet him, he and I went out to dinner at Raymond's and um, he was already starting to, he was talking to me about how Jack walks and how Jack would hold his head and how Jack would just, you know, turn turn and look at somebody and how he would hold his brow because he's so cautious and he's so, like, wary of— And he's had memory of, problems. And he's got so, memory yeah. problems. Yeah, so he's, and, he's trying to figure out the world every time he's looking at yeah. somebody. Yeah. So he, he, he dove and he read the book three or four times. Like, when he and I would talk about the script— he would say, well, that line is different than it is in the book. And I was like, really? <laughs> okay, if you say so. Yeah. I mean, he he just dove in completely, and he did a fantastic job. I mean, I'm selfish, but I think it's his best best role. Oh, I do, too. I'm, and, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, man, this is incredible. And I'm happy because he's doing a great job. And, of course, I know it's your movie, you know, mm-hmm. because you – but as a writer, how does that feel, seriously, to sit there and watch somebody just – and, and you had that – also in Desperation Road, too. I mean, great performances in that movie, too. Yeah. For, for smaller movies, I thought the, the cast on both of the movies were just so out of this world fantastic. I agree. The, the cast for both films were great. And I, I'll be honest, like this taught me a lesson in that actors are looking for great scripts and they're looking for good stories. Mel and Gibson it, told you that. And Yes. And it doesn't matter the budget of the movie or any of it. Um, they are looking to do something really interesting and cool. So I think 
I mean, I guess that's patting myself on the back a little bit, but I believe the stories were interesting and great, and so did the people involved with them. And so we didn't have any qualms about handing them to movie stars to see what you think. And fortunately, some of those movie stars said, like, absolutely um, want to do this. How does it feel? It feels weird. And because I've only heard those lines spoken in my head, like yeah. in the writing of the novel, everybody sounds like me, right? Everybody's got my rhythm of speaking. Everybody's got that. Even in writing the script, when I'm in the room alone and I'm doing the dialogue, everybody like it's all in my head. The first time action is yelled on on a set and that first scene starts and you hear the actors begin to deliver the lines in their own voices, with their own inflections, with their own kind of interpretations of how someone says something yeah it's weird but it's also like really interesting to me and it reminds me of how like individual art is and and to share it and collaborate it with people becomes a very um kind of exciting exciting thing you know and to see someone truly like love what you do as much as you love it and i think that goes to the directors the producers the actors the all the different crew um, members like they really everybody's trying to take what you've done and what you've delivered and let's make it the, as good as we can possibly make it let's make it its best version of itself and that is a tremendously rewarding feeling oh you hear the horror stories all the time you know yeah. i know tom clancy all those years nearly pulled his hair out because yeah. they would take you know they would take his jack ryan character and they would go off in a different direction but you because you're so involved you're doing the screenwriting you're doing some producing mm-hmm. uh, and, and angie thomas is kind of the same way it's kind of been fun watching both of you get totally involved in the movie making process and it was really neat too that you were able to uh, just allow your daughter to be able to involved in something she's passionate and loved about too yeah my oldest presley was 16 when we shot rumble through the dark in natchez and uh we made her an uh, intern in the costume department because she's interested in fashion design and and that world and uh to their credit the costume crew they made her one of their own and treated her just as if she'd been on movie sets her entire life and done this her entire life they didn't treat her like an intern who you know, they asked to go get coffee or take out yeah. the garbage or whatever. Like they let her be in with the fittings with the actors. They let her go to help shop. We need to go find some things. They really treated her as one of the crew and it made a real impact on her. Um, and I was very proud of her because she was working 12 hour days on set and then going to high school um, online at the time, you know, that was in 21 um, at night, you know, for a couple hours after that, uh, it was a very impactful experience for not just me, but I think our entire family. And I know as a parent, that's that, you know, because I mean, I love what I do and I know you love what you do. But at the end of the day, if it's what you do is a way to be able to help your family and make them, that's yeah. that's the coolest thing ever. Absolutely. You want to show them what's possible. We're I mean, sadly, the, the sad thing is we have like two minutes left. Yeah. Anything I haven't really covered. I mean, because I mean, we, we just really got down in the weeds on the creative process, which, to, frankly, to me is fascinating because you're really good at it. Well, that's my and, favorite you know, part to talk about. I think yeah. um, I, I really get stumped when I have to go on book tour and answer questions about character or story, um, because I don't really know how to explain it sometimes. It you sounds know? like it's like you start a journey and you kind of, it looks like when you write it, and I don't know about you, I mean, you don't plot it out. You don't no. have an outline. You kind of take your characters on a journey. Yeah. And by the time the novel comes out, it's been a year since I put the, oh. did the final copy <laughs> yeah. at it. And I on remember. Page 34 on yeah. The Fighter, you know. 
I remember I was on, on book tour with Salvage This World, and I can't remember where I was. I was somewhere, and somebody raised their hand in the Q&A and asked a question about one of the characters, but they named the character, and it was one of the sub-characters. Oh, yeah. And I was kind of stumped for a minute, and I, I was like, who? Like, I thought they were talking about something else. From They are like, from your book, the character? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, 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 okay. Um, so I'd much rather talk about <laughs> the creative process. Um, well, good. I know where to go on the next time I interview. Yeah, that's yeah, right. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find every sub-minor character on every <laughs> one of your books, and we're going to do it. Like, stump uh, the author. It'll be a short yeah. interview. I can promise you that. It, it'll, it would be prickly. <laughs> <laughs> prickly. Yeah. Yeah. I, might, like, I liked you until then. Yeah, yeah really. You, know, like, you might yeah. see another side of me if that's the road we went down. Well, okay, so would you be, would you be um, the fighter? Would you be Jack? Absolutely. Great. I mean, this sounds weird, and I talked about this when the book came out. Because Jack is kind of a disturbing, but also very lovable character. I like I Jack, think. yeah. Um, I think of all the characters I've written in my career and probably may ever write, I find more emotional attachment to Jack than any of them. And I cannot, I cannot define that. Even as I was writing the story, like I just knew it, there was something that was connecting with me emotionally and the things that he was dealing with and going through that just, I think, have been closer to me personally uh, than any other character I've dealt with. And I love them all, and I'm tied to them all emotionally, but Jack rises above in some way, and I can't define that. Um, Your website? Sorry. we got the music playing. MichaelFerrisSmith.com. Michael, this has been fantastic. Thank, Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening. A special thanks to our special guest today, Michael Ferris-Smith. And if you'd like to hear this or any past episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or on our MP Public Media Media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio with episode and podcast produced by Lacey Alexander, Jermaine Flood, and, of course, Abram. Thank you for stepping in today. Stay tuned for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit coming up next. And join us again next Monday at 10. I'm Marshall Ramsey. Y'all have a great week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.